guys, Zach Hughes here. Listen, thanks for stumbling on my podcast. This is the first episode ever of my podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a former Army Green Beret that retired in August of 2019. Now I'm the COO of Elite Meat and one of the partners of Operators Association. You can find me on any of the social media platforms. Thank you so much for stumbling in. So on today's first episode of the Zach Hughes podcast, what you've got is you've got a one-hour conversation between myself, a former Green Beret, and John Allen, a former Navy SEAL. And what we do is we literally just discuss the differences between being a Green Beret and a Navy SEAL. In Afghanistan, on a mission, day-to-day, on the team, what are the differences between being a Green Beret and being a Navy SEAL? That's literally all we talk about. It's an incredible conversation. So if you're intrigued and interested in learning the hard truths about what the differences are between the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets, dive in. This is from Bing Sucks. Do Green Berets get to pick their kits and what they wear in deployment the same as SEALs do? So this is going to be interesting because we can kind of rattle off each other's, which we've never been able to do ever. Um, the answer is yes. You can pick your kit. So mm-hmm. everything is customizable on our kit, period. Mm-hmm. I would say overwhelmingly most guys use the one that's issued because the group issues a cry one that's pretty good. a cry one? Yeah, it's pretty Holy legit. Cow. So the group issue one is one that I would say 9 out of 10 people use because it's just, everything works perfectly. It zips up. It's got a pouch. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got a water packet and everything. Um, but you can customize everything. The only thing that is like mandatory that has to be in a certain location is your tourniquet pouch. And, that, that, have those. and we would have those on our back like kidney, like back left on our tactical belt. It's not even on your kit, it's on your belt. So belt's separate than kit. And that's like the only piece of equipment that you have to have in this exact spot, period, all the time. Yeah. What about you guys? Uh, yeah, so what, pretty much the same setup. Yeah. Instead of, I think what you're probably describing though with the tourniquets is, was that like a, like your platoon said everybody who deploys is going to wear it in the same space? Or was that like a, a army-wide thing? That's a team thing, so just right. like the 12 of us. Right, so you got what he's talking about too, to get even more granular, is like, you know, you're going to become, let's say, a Green Beret, but you're going to be broken down into like your particular team, your particular platoon, and you're going to have standard operating procedures that your platoon adheres to. It might be, hey, we're going to put our tourniquets on, you know, center mass, but you need to make sure that everybody in your platoon does it because the whole point is like, if you go down and someone needs to use a tourniquet, if I fall, if I come up on Zach and he's been hit, I need to know without a doubt where like the tourniquets are on his kit because I would use his tourniquets and so we had the same thing we had SOPs for uh, we have a blowout kit like the mm-hmm. medical blowout mm-hmm. kit you use it's like a little pouch that has like gauze and some basic stuff and we also had tourniquets had to be in like the center point right here mm-hmm. like we're being into the front of your, your M4 pouch um, but yeah no honestly we were allowed to pick well we were allowed to pick whatever we wanted yeah. what we would do is we would build our kits um, like our, our plate carriers and everything that goes on to it and we have like the one that we we showed the command. Not that we got inspected. It was just the one we wore in training. Yeah. But like all of us would go out and buy Gucci. Like we've got the JPC, the, the Cry Kids, and we got all these like really like awesome like high end stuff just for deployment. So like we would do lots of them. Treated too like dog and pony type shows yeah. where like your command was like you know some high up person in, in in DC actually where we are would like come out to see it and we put on all our issued stuff to look really neat and clean and polished. But like as soon as we went to deployment, no one used any of that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty similar stuff. I would say what we got issued, the kit was legit because it was Cry. Cry also has a war belt that nobody liked because it was too thick. So we would just 
put that to the side, and everybody would buy essentially Ronin belts or yeah. some some derivative of a smaller, leaner tactical belt. And a lot of us made them overseas as well. Nice. All right. So before I give the question, I'm going to give my example. It's referencing something I said. Uh, I had talked about in actually someone asked on the Discord live stream. Like, yeah. what are the cultural differences between, like, SEAL teams and the Green Berets? Yeah. And I, I just got into that there's lots of overlap, but I'd say the biggest differentiator is you guys are housed under the Army, and we're housed yeah. under the Navy. Yeah. Like, and so I kind of got into that, and I talked about how in the Navy, in the, in the SEAL teams, everyone, like, really uh, resents big Navy when they get mm -hmm. involved. Um, but I said, like, realistically, when you're at the team, like literally when you're part of a SEAL team, as much as there is heavy influence by big Navy, like you gotta do like your, you know, special online courses to show yep. you're up to date on yep. like cybersecurity or whatever, by and large, you're kind of on an island. Like we kind of, it was, it would be like rare if big Navy was like legitimately getting involved. Yeah. Even though they're technically yeah. supposed to, they never did. And so I said that we're kind of on an island. And so the question was, uh, are Rangers more tied to big army than SF? John described SF as being on their own island, and that's yeah. what I was talking about. So, no, <laughs> they're not on their own island nearly as much as a Green Beret ODA. Just by definition, it's still they're still an infantry unit. They're the mobile light infantry special operations unit, but they run in a platoon. And a platoon in the army is not the same as a platoon in the navy. A platoon in the army is four squads. So four squads, each squad has twelve people. It's a massive. It's a big unit, and they deploy together as an infantry unit that doesn't do unconventional warfare. So just because they don't do unconventional warfare, their model is, is army model, period. It's not unconventional, it's not different. So their rules, even though they're the number one infantry unit in the world, they still fall under the army's rules, period, all the time. Everything is big army on their kits. This is like the they, ranger side, This right? is the ranger side. Like every, it's not big army. They, they get special operations kits, but it's like very... Their SOPs are like real SOPs, I guess. The Army's different. Yeah, it's like very, yeah. like, this is what it will be. And they do that specifically on purpose, and they send all their guys to Ranger School, and the, the mentality is so different from those guys, like, operationally, because it's, their, like, culture is super, like, structured and disciplined yeah. and very by the book. Not to say that we're not, but it's just so far away from that. Well, there's also, like, just in numbers alone, there's way less ODA guys than Rangers. Yeah. And so you guys, just in virtue of being fewer of you, it's easier to get away with stuff than it is if you're... And how many Rangers are there? I don't know. That's a good question, actually. There's a lot. I, I, there's a lot. It's small relative to the rest of the military, but it's big yeah. relative to special operations. Yeah, and I think that because their mission isn't unconventional at all, they, they don't... They're not ever operating by themselves. So whereas that, that kind of plays into That's the culture point. as well, like they're, they're never going to go into Afghanistan with 11 guys and live there for 23 days. That would never happen in the entire world. Um, if they are coming in big, like, like taking over an airfield and like occupying by force with like at least 60 guys, period, every time they do something. Um, and then they may do small missions from there, but because of that, their entire culture is set up to be more army because that's an army game plan. You just brought up something that you may have already hit on, but it's definitely worth talking about. So last night we were kind of swapping war stories about our time overseas. Yeah. And at one point you, you talked about your 23 day mission where like he just kind of off the cuff was like, yeah, we were just like in this valley, uh, like Nangahar, wherever you were. He's like, yeah, we were there for like 23 days and, it, and it, I, didn't, I didn't really hear him or think about it. I was just kind of listening. I was like, wait a second, you were like, 
out in the field for 23 days. And you may all think that like, oh, special operators are just out in the field all the time. Like, are you kidding me, dude? Yeah. When I was deployed to Afghanistan, it was like, if we stayed out for 24 hours, it was like, what the fuck is going on? Why are we <laughs> still out in the field? And so you, like your deployment, when you were in Afghanistan, it was like, they would go out and like be literally living in like the most hostile territory. Like literally for me, my big story that I didn't even tell you last night was the one night that I stayed out overnight in the village. I'm like shitting my pants in the middle of this village yeah. because it's like all bad dudes around and I'm yeah. like with a small team. You did it for 23 days and that's like part of your mission set. That's a, that's a huge, SEAL teams don't do that shit. I know, yeah. Well, yeah. Talk about it. I, I think so basically, um, we came into Afghanistan and, and the overall mission has shifted and we knew where the bad guys were and they had a very specific area that, that they were operating in. So we went in and the game plan was to be in for six days and to eradicate them systematically through this village, like caught by caught, like just moving along and, and clearing them out. And then we were going to switch with another team and then they were going to come in and keep pushing through and basically taking out all the ISIS presence there. Yeah. And what happened is what normally happens, you get there and the plans change. Oh, yeah. And so we had enough equipment to sustain ourselves for probably about 12 days, I think. So were you planning for seven or something? We were planning for six, so we doubled our stuff because it's, it's, things happen. So, you know, this is like why you train with rucksacks and you train with all this equipment because it's going to happen if you're a Green Beret. You're going to be out there, period. Um, super common for guys to stay like, overnight. That's, that's one of the big differences that, that we're talking about. We're like, we, we love like, out. fuck no. Which like, I'm not even bringing a sleeping pad because I will <laughs> not sleep out in the field. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. And so people have asked a bunch about what are the differences. Like, it's not just that you guys are unconventional warfare and we're like more water-based. Like, that is something that like SEALs would never be tasked with doing. Yeah. We would just shit the bed on a multi-day operation. <laughs> we really would. Because like everything SEALs are designed to do typically is way more focused on DA. Yeah. Like, yeah. almost to a fault. To a so, fault. Uh, it, real quick, I did a um, I did a training mission with with uh, one of the SEAL teams. I think it was, it was one of the teams. And um, we came in, they were doing a, a, a joint deployment with guys that they were like head partner force nice. and so they're like hey we'd like to bring an ODA in you guys kind of give us some perspective we were the water team because we did the water infiltration stuff so it was a perfect match for us I was like epic we'll come in we'll, we'll talk to you guys about partner force working and let's dive into some boat stuff because you guys are crushing it let's see it yeah. so it was really interesting for us to like go through for me specifically to go through that see you guys do like boat stuff that was incredible and then we pivoted into the DA portion where we were clearing houses, yeah. which is way different. Are the way, I don't know if you had the opportunity to ever work. I've never done CQC with an ODA. So we would even call it CQB. So it's like literally just by textbook definition, the different names. And so we're going, but like we're going through this house and then they're going through this house. So like my team is going through the house and like we have guys on the risers like looking, which is normal. And then the SEAL team is going through the house. And we're up there watching them, and they're up there watching us, and we're like literally like afterwards game planning and talking about That's the differences. Cool. And I, I was like, this is epic. Like this is really cool. Um, and I was blown away by the differences yep. because you because to be clear, this is, the SEAL teams are more DA focused. It is very clear when you go through, in my opinion, when you go through a, an operation like that, seeing them do DA is different than seeing us do DA because. That's not like what we're really doing that very often. That's like not the core mission, period. Um, and, and, and we're just not, it's not the same. It was really yeah. cool to watch your dudes do that because it's not, it's not the same. Yeah, I mean, so for those that don't know what it is, we keep saying it's so a DA is, stands for direct action. Uh, you're thinking about like, you know, kill capture type missions, usually pretty short in, in, in time. 
Um, so like when we do, so part of our workup, we do like recce, like special reconnaissance. We'll actually go out and live in training, like out in the mountains in yeah. Nevada and stuff. We'll do overnights, but everybody knows that like we're just checking a box because there's not a fucking chance in hell <laughs> that we're gonna ever do a multi-day recce anywhere. We're just not designed yeah. for it. And so the when we do the recce portion of our workup, it's totally like this sounds horrible, but like everybody knows that we're checking a box. Yeah, you're not like treating it like it's stupid, but you just it would be like I don't know. Like if you go if you went to a dive if you went to dive school, like great, you've been qualified in it, but you kind of know like you're not going to be tapped to like go to this major diving mission because yeah. the SEAL teams would get asked. Even our that. dive teams don't do dive missions. Right. Period. So like when we go through it, it's kind of like okay, whatever. But then when you get to the CQC block, our block of training where we do urban assault, mounted assault like buildings assault it is like the super bowl every day yeah like the stakes that you're like everything everyone is graded so harshly like you better pick up and learn as fast as you can because you will literally be told you can't deploy you and can't do this shit so it's like the most important even though technically it's the same like we're putting the same focus on each training block when you're going through the da really yeah. like the urban da stuff the attitude is different the instructors are like usually the best in, in the teams are the yep. ones leading that. And dude, like when you start seeing guys that have done real combat clearance overseas, like yep. I remember the first time being in the rafters watching my platoon that just got yep. back in Afghanistan doing clearance. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear when I saw it. I was like, that, that's very polished. Like, they yeah, they, they really have perfected good. that, I'm not gonna lie to you. I think the difference between on the ODA side is that we have that level of detail in our MOS phases. Yeah. Our, our guys that are combo guys, our guys yeah, that are engineers, that. our guys that are do whatever, that is where it's the core value. Like that's that's where everything gets to be the Super Bowl level. Like you've got to perform. You're the only guy going to Afghanistan with this team for 23 days. Yeah. And if you mess up the communications, you're the only person yeah. doing it. So you have to have all of your equipment. You have to be like tight on that for sure. And I think that that's one of the things that's like one of the differences. The DA stuff for the, for the SEALs and the MOS portion of like, being the Charlie, being the engineer, doing the explosives, all that stuff, these guys, we, we can't ever have, we don't ever have like communication guys come attached to us for 23 days. So it's like you're the echo, then you're the communications guy, and the buck stops with you. So what are the different, because so, so guys, just again, I'm sure a lot of you already know this, but in the SEAL teams, like I would, I, I went to JTAC school, which is like calling in airstrikes. I went to communication school, so yeah. radios. I went to lead diver schools, learning how to do like advanced diving. And then there's like preacher and there's sniper. There's all these different schools you go to. But unlike what the Green Berets do, like you just get various quals and it's kind of on you to be good at multiple quals. Like it's not unusual to have a guy that is a sniper, a breacher, and a medic, right? Which by default, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be the expert at any one thing. It's more like you have a group of people that are really good not great, but really good at a bunch of things. Whereas yeah. in the ODAs, it's like you're going to be fucking amazing at comps, at yeah. whatever. So, what are the different MOSs that you guys are placed into? So it goes down literally alphabetically. So Alpha's the captain. For all the enlisted, it's Bravos are the weapons guys. So they're the guys that go through the weapons phase. Charlies are the engineers. So they do explosives. They do building the buildings. They do all of our purchasing and procurements. Yep. Deltas are the medics. That's clear. They do all of the medic stuff. Echoes is the communication guys, so SATCOMs, line of sight, anything related to like high-end electronics, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Uh, that's what I did. And then the Foxes are the intelligence guys, and then the Zulu are the team sergeant, like runs, runs the whole thing. Real quick, the captain, that's like your 
officer or whatever? Yeah, it's the O3. And we also have a warrant officer as well. So a 180 alpha is what we call a warrant officer. So if you're an alpha, you're, you're in charge, right? Y yes, you're, you're out and up. So your okay. policy, Got it. the team sergeant runs the team, and it's very clear. Can you go, I mean, it sounds like, let's say, if you were what, a Delta? And you were I was an Echo. Echo. Yeah. If you were an O, and you ended up like becoming in charge, you'd become an Alpha, is that right? How does that work? How do you, can you go from MOS to MOS? That's my question. No. No, you're not switching okay. MOSs. So the only switch that you could ever do would be if you were a weapons engineer, Delta, or combo guy, I get it. and you moved to two things. You can move to Fox. Right. After you've been around for a while. Okay. You gotta be a, like you have to have some seniority. You probably went to the support team, did some operations for your stud. Mm -hmm. Or you could do the warrant officer. And the warrant right. officer is the assistant like team leader. Got it. For when we do split ops so that we have to still have an officer. So at what point do you go into MOS training in the pipeline? So after it's like a three quarters of the way. So after okay, so right after well Seer. Yeah, right after Seer, you're like three, you've done SUT, you've done the squad unit tactics, you've done selection, you've done all this, you've done like introduction to unconventional warfare, and all those platforms are done, and you go, for me, the MOS portion was four months, 16 weeks. Um, for the Deltas, it's like nine months plus time. Well, so the, the SEAL teams, we also go to their 18 Delta school. Yeah. So that's the medic course, it's it's the it's absolutely the best. I yeah, don't think anything's even close to no, it. I don't think so. It's unreal. Uh, I, I, I almost wish that I did it, but I never did it. So. I wanted to do it. You put in for it, you I, get it? On my like, wish list, you get a wish list. I put, I literally put this, this is what I put. Because they ask you to wish list of like language or group right, right. or MOS, and you can put it in order you want. So I put Spanish, like above everything. Right. Immediately knew I would go to seventh group, um, because I wanted to learn Spanish. And then I put Echo, no, I'm sorry. Then I put Delta, so I did Medic, Weapons, Engineering, <laughs> Communications. Literally in that and order. The and so they're like, congratulations, you're gonna be a communications guy. <laughs> Let's oh. go. Okay, that's what oh, we're gonna do. Man. Did you mention Sears School? Where'd you do Sears School? It's all at Bragg. The whole course is at Fort Bragg oh. in North Carolina. So, so Sears School is like the, uh, and I don't know how much we can even get into because I don't even know what's sensitive or what's not, but from a high level, Sears School, there's different levels of it. Uh, it stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, Escape. And it's the, basically if you're going to be um, up and uh, you're going to be up close with the enemy or engaging with the enemy. If you're in a combat unit, there's there's different levels of Sears school you go to. For special operators, you go to like the highest level Sears school, which is like okay, you've been captured by the enemy because your unit has the highest potential for that to happen. Yes. And you go through these. You go through a week of like classroom stuff, learning about how to survive, evade, resist, escape, and ours is broken into two parts. We did survival and evasion in Alaska, and we did resistance and escape in San Diego. But you learn about like how to handle being captured, and I'm not going to get into how to do it, but the, what people remember about SEER school, if anyone that's been through it, in, in particular, the folks that go through the highest level version, you basically get like tortured for like a couple of days. Yes. And oh my God, like you're put in these like boxes. It's just, it's not like torture where you're like actually fearful for your life. It's like mental torture for a few days. And everybody who goes to Sear School leaves it being like, dude, fuck Sear School. Dude, Sear School is awful. Yeah, it's pretty rough. And it's important to know a lot of people in the military go to Sear School. Yeah. There's the different tiers, like he said. So if you're a pilot, you have to go to a, a Sear School yeah. regardless because you're flying overseas. So you go to a Sear School. The Air Force has a Sear School. Other militaries have steer schools, and there's just a hierarchy. So obviously, if you're a SEAL or a Green Beret, you're going to be at the very, at the most intense one. Um, and it's terrible. Ours is all in one location, so it's all at Fort Bragg. It's all at the Camp McCall location. 
all combined in one. Um, it, was, it was pretty rough. But I, I enjoyed it because you actually learned, I learned, so, I mean, maybe a little bit different for us because um, the survival phase is like really built on like tactics in the woods. I don't know if that's common in, in like y'all's, but like we deep dive into like how to build snares yeah, and traps and like all this stuff and it was like really great. Yeah, no, that, that's just funny. Your school sucked. That's terrible. I lost like 12 pounds. Oh, dude. I was, I, like, I was hallucinating like one hour. I didn't eat for six <laughs> days. Not one piece of food besides some grass that I found, but it went into my body. Nice. Um, all right, so there's a bunch of really good questions. I'm gonna do do this one real quick. I'll answer it and I'll turn it over to you. Uh, so Trish Peck, uh, she asked, what are our feelings on negative feedback from fellow uh, SF, teammate, SF teammates about OA? And so I think that all of you should just kind of get the high level on the culture that exists once you get into a team and then what happens when you leave the team because this is actually a really big deal. Um, so before you join, a SEAL team, an ODA, whatever, you're trying to consume as much information as you possibly can about the pipeline of choice, yeah. right? For me, it was like I couldn't have read more. There was like no more books to read. <laughs> I had like read every book. There was nothing sure. more I could find online. I had done everything and consumed as much as I possibly could because all I wanted was any sort of insight or, or telltale sign that, you know, I was on the right path and yeah. I understood what I was getting into. So like, you guys are all, all fundamentally, for the most part, in that space where you're consuming all this information and you're happy it exists. You're happy that there are operators like us that are out there providing this type of, of feedback. And it's all good. Yeah, It's all good, right? There's nothing negative. It's all positive. You're psyched, right? Then you get into selection. And what happens is, is you start to recognize that the cadre, so the people that are leading your instruction, and the, the senior folks that, have, that, have, that were in your shoes, that had the same desire to learn everything they could, there's a shift where now that you're kind of coming into this community, you realize that there is a very intense push to shut the fuck up and don't talk about it. Now that's a big part of it. And on the one hand, it's because it's important not to give away sensitive information. It's important not to, you know, there, 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 there's a level of sensitivity certainly, for sure. But I'm talking about like, you don't, it's like you don't talk about Fight Club. Like that's, that's the mentality, it really is. And you don't think twice about it because you're just happy to, to be a part of the process. You're happy that you're in selection. And you, there's no party that rebels against this, even though literally a month before you're like, thank goodness, something like OA exists. Yeah. Thank goodness, I needed it, right? And then you get to a team and it's only reinforced this notion of like, keep to yourself, don't talk about your experiences. But there's a huge problem that comes up at the back end. And it's, it's one that we're in the middle of kind of like seeing both from the OA perspective and with Elite Meet, which is when you go into the SEAL teams, for example, or the ODAs, you, you, you've set a huge goal for yourself and you've achieved it if you've made it to the end. So you get, you get the feeling of, oh my God, I set these huge lofty goals and I achieved them. You start to feel kind of invincible. You're surrounded by other people in your platoon and in your team that have all achieved this massive goal and you, your confidence is through the roof. And you've also been kind of inundated with this, this approach of, you don't talk about what you do while you're in. It's a huge part of the kind of the culture but you develop this false sense of security, right? While you are in the teams, 
you're not worried about what's coming next for you. You're not even thinking about what's coming next for you because you're in the team. You're active duty, you're getting ready for deployment, you're surrounded by your best bros in the world, and you only, you begin to reinforce this idea that anybody that even so much as mentions their experience in special operations is a sellout, they suck, they're a terrible operator, we hate them, because that's just kind of the culture. It's like, it's like team first on steroids. Like, it doesn't matter what you've done, it only matters what the team is doing. And it's a part of the culture, but you start to think, because you've achieved this huge goal, yep. that even though I know I can't ever talk about this stuff, somehow on the outside, I'm gonna be hugely successful because I'm a fucking Navy SEAL. But the problem is when you actually are getting out, and this is why there's all this issue around people talking about their experiences. When you're getting out, you realize that, oh, that's right, my paycheck's not gonna come in every two weeks. I don't have health insurance. I need to make a living. And oh, by the way, the single most important factor of who I am and what I represent in my experience is that I was a Green Brave for X amount of time where I was a SEAL. But there's absolutely no guidance on how to go about, call it, selling your experience. And so people fall into this trap of like, oh boy, I didn't realize that in order for people to appreciate my experiences and, and like hire me or do whatever, they need to know that I was a SEAL. They need to know I was a Green Beret. And unless I'm signaling to the world that I have this experience and I have this value, no one's going to know. And so what happens is on the back end of service, you have a group of people that don't understand how to effectively sell what they did in a way that is respectful. And oh, by the way, there's no way that's respectful in the eyes of the active duty world. As soon as you start talking about it, you're wrong. And so just there's this huge gap that happens when you get out, when people are trying to figure out how can I leverage what I've done to be successful. And it's just very, very difficult. And so what we've seen at Elite Meet is we actually tell our members when they're transitioning out, you should describe the experiences that you've had. You should tell the world why you're valuable. And you should set the precedent to the next generation of guys that it's perfectly acceptable to talk about training, talk about what you learned overseas. I mean, it isn't like we're giving away stuff that like is going to talk, talk about the stuff that you can. Right. There's a ton of stuff that we don't talk about. And so one of the things we've come to realize in being big advocates for our community when they transition out at Elite Meet, we're advocates for be on social media. That's not a fad. It's a big part of the world we live in. Yeah, I think that's important to talk, yeah. discuss also is that is it, our culture is pivoting because technology is oh. taking over more. So like the, the older generation are, are getting out and the newer generation are coming in. Yes. Our operators are where they're at. They're on social media. They're on Operators Association. They're consuming content like we used to consume books and they're more out there and they're more present. Just like our community is, yeah. So it's like it's like a byproduct of of just really our evolution in technology as, as a society, really, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, that's probably enough about that. But I think that I think but that's the, the short version is when we look at OA, we want the next generation of yeah. people to get as much information that's relevant as we possibly can. But we also want to create a picture of like, hey, like doing stuff like OA is really valuable. We know how valuable it is. And we're, we're fine standing behind the idea that this is important to us, we believe in it, yeah. even if other people don't. So I would say that we feel really good about OA, we feel really good about Elite Meet, and you know what? Part of creating ripples in the world, there comes with people that don't like what you're doing. For sure. Haters is a thing, and to be honest, yeah. dude, that, that means nothing to us. We care about you guys and getting out the information that's important. Yeah, no doubt. All right, spot on. So I'm gonna ask you, because this is actually an awesome question from Angavi underscore 93. And I don't, I don't have an answer to this. Maybe okay. I do. All right, let's see. What career path would you have chosen if soft didn't work out? Mm. You, like, you go like, into the army and you just shit the bed, you don't make it, and now you're like, now what do I do? But what would you have done? I think, so when I went, when I joined, I, I had this illusion that I was just going to stay in. So, so, so in the um, in the interest of 
falling out of Green Beret training, you're going to go be an infantryman, mm. which is not appealing, which does not sound like something that I might want to do for 20 years. Mm. Maybe I fell into it and I loved it, maybe I didn't, who knows. Um, but before I joined the Army, I knew I always wanted to do something involved with like giving back and being active and like doing something with our society in terms like of philanthropy, like, like public service, not, okay. even, not necessarily philanthropy at all, but public service to some degree. So for me specifically, I think if being a Green Beret didn't work out, I spent about five years in the infantry, I probably got out and I went and became like a police officer somewhere. That's like where my head was at then, where my head's at now, you know, we evolve as people. Mm -hmm would not do that at all. I would go into some, some development of business in, in some aspect. But at the time I joined the Army, that was probably the direction that I was more headed. Because I, before I joined the Army, I was still toying with the idea of going into law enforcement. I think that I probably would have gone into law enforcement too. Yeah. But to be honest, like I think same as you, once you've kind of decided on the path, you're so front side focused on yeah, succeeding exactly. that you don't really put much stock into a plan B. Nope. And yeah, I, I actually tell people don't have a plan B. Yeah because it actually hurts you because you start thinking about, well, don't worry, I can do this thing that I've already thought about. Yeah, we're, we're already in the Army. We just go in the infantry. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not how it works. Yeah, that's good. All right, um, here's one, and this is probably stemming from something that I typically say, so I'm going to see how you respond to it. Um, this is from Michael Wolfolk. Why do you think Special Operations chooses you? You can interpret that however you want. That's a good one. Um, so... Because it's a team dynamic, and the team dynamics are very small, the individuals that you're with have to be team guys. They have to be team players. They've got to be open to doing things that are not in their best interest for the interest of the team and really for the interest of the members in the team. Because of that, our selection systems are set up to capture people at their worst during team events, mm. period. That's how they select you. If you don't have that core attribute, if you're at the worst you've ever been in your entire life, and your buddy trips and falls, and you don't stop to help him, even though you're, this is just an example, even though you're miserable, you haven't slept, you haven't eaten, you're dying, you're being told you're doing a terrible job, you've got sand all over you, you're wet, and it's 2 a.m. in the morning, you don't have the energy to literally help your friend up, but he falls, no matter what that is. And you have to take off your rucksack, and you have to go help him get him up, and like pick him up, and like worry about him. If you're not the guy that's gonna do that, then it's not going to self-select you yeah. because the cadre members are waiting for those interactions on a very micro level to write up narratives. And that's how a soft will select you, in my opinion. Yeah. Not necessarily on the individual level, but like how they select you is because you have to have that in, in your core. That's just something you have to have like in your person. So great point. I think that like what he's really saying is, is what I definitely stand behind, which is the person that shows up at the beginning of selection, like when you showed up at the beginning of selection or I did, you already have the character traits, or you don't, for like the person yeah. that ends up getting selected, you, you have those character traits at the beginning. Yeah. The course is designed to elicit those, those types of character traits and bring them to the surface. Yeah. So like, it chooses you in the sense that they're not gonna teach you how to be the operator during selection. They're just looking for the people that have these character traits that they have designed this course to, to pull them to the surface that at the end, the course literally, the people that are left are the ones that pass through the kind of the strainer, if you will, and they have those core characteristics. And at the end of selection, remember, now you've been selected, now they're gonna train you. The training happens after selection. It's, there's a bit of a, a, a mis, uh, misinformation, if you will, around it. Like, you're not going to selection to learn how to do the job. You learn nothing in selection. Nothing. It's, you learn about yourself, you yeah. learn about what you're made of and, and, and all that, but you're being literally selected to be trained. 
And so the course is looking for people with the characteristics like you described, grit, determination, whatever. Um, but like, that's how it works. The course chooses you, assuming you don't quit. Meaning if you don't self-select out, yeah. the course will either choose you or it won't. Um, all right, pull up another question. Of course I turned it off. All right. Hmm. This might be a good one, and, and I don't really know how we do this. We can pretty much only compare uh, yeah, your selection to mine, running some comparisons. Yeah, so just um, talk real quick about, like during selection, the, yeah. the times that you're graded for running and swimming. Okay, yeah, and, we'll then, do that. and then I'll do the same. All right, so Clay Caesar, shout out to Clay. He asked a question, uh, basically com compare and contrast running and swimming in different selection programs. We'll talk about SF and, and yep. steel. So there's lots of running and, and swimming that happens, but there's only certain times you get graded on it. So for steel selection, you have the three phases, first, second, and third, and the standards for the things you get graded on get harder and harder, but it's very structured, okay? So without getting into the, def the different numbers, uh, every week in BUDS, and I think it's really with the exception of maybe one week, and even that I don't even necessarily know, uh, every single week you get graded uh, on a four-mile timed run that you do on hard pack sand in boots and pants. So every week you have to pass a four-mile timed run. Um, in addition, every week you have to swim two miles in the ocean with fins on, where you swim a mile to a turnaround point facing one direction, and then you swim back facing the other direction. So you have to be able to do combat side stroke on both sides really, really well. And so you do your two-mile swim. So every single week for six months, you have to run four miles and pass it with a certain score that gets progressively harder. Same goes for the two-mile swim. We have a couple things that I guess would be pass-fail. Like we do a long we do a long run in third phase. You do a half marathon and then a seven-mile run. You do a five-mile ocean swim and a three-mile ocean swim in second phase that are pass-fail. And then there's a couple times you do some rucking, which is more like you just got to keep up. It's not like a time. It's like you will do these things or else you're done. But Generally speaking, four mile runs every week, two mile swims every week, and then a couple long stuff throughout. Yeah, so for selection, there is zero swimming in special forces. Yeah. You don't even go in the water at all. Now during the course, you will be graded, there's a pass-fail portion of swimming that's 50 total meters of swimming. So you're in a full uniform, your actual uniform with your boots, you gotta get into a pool, you gotta swim 25 meters down, hit the wall, turn around, swim 25 meters back. And that's just to make sure that you can like literally swim. Literally swim when you're diving, or excuse me, when you're jumping and there's like ponds around, things like that. They just wanna make sure that this guy can swim. Right. Um, that's it, the entire course for you know, all two years. There's zero in selection. And in terms of grading criteria for runs during selection, you've got the times, it's interesting that the times don't change during our selection. It's the same standard the whole time. You just get graded a few times. Um, because it gets harder during selection because your body's getting more feet down. You know, there's no rest, you're just constantly grinding. So you've gotta run five miles in under 40 minutes, period. Like that has to happen uh, at any point. And you, you're running in the sand of North Carolina that's like portions of it are probably packed, portions of it are not packed. And it's like you're shifting around a little bit, uh, which is so frustrating. And you're in PTs, you're in like shoes, you're in like your PT equipment very PT gear, you're not in boots at all during the running graded portions. And you're gonna do that three times during selection. So 19 days, you'll do that three times. Then you're gonna ruck a lot. You, you're under load, under, when I say under load, I mean like on a ruck, under a ruck, for probably 
70% of the entire 19 days. Like you're on a rucksack period for most of the things you do. Regardless of what you're doing, you're taking a rucksack to it. <laughs> like it's, it's all ruck based. Um, so you're graded on a rucksack march. You'll do that it, probably the graded portion three times and then you do like a couple that are not even graded, you just don't know. Um, but you're rucking a lot and they're all 12 mile rucks. Oh. So 12 mile rucks, 55 pound rucksack, adding water on top of That's that. Awful. And you've got to do it under three hours is like the standard. Um, two hours is a competitive time. So at any point during selection, you've just got to meet those two metrics on running and rucking and you're passing that portion. And you also, separate of those, you have to do the PT test, which is a two mile run and they're changing it soon, but it's a two mile run, push-ups and sit-ups. And your algorithm of that has to be passing, which typically is like under 13 minutes is a good time for your two mile run. Um, and that's on a better surface than the five mile sand runs. And that's it, those are the standards. And those that number for running and rucking stays the same throughout the entire course. At the very end when you graduate and you're about to get your green beret and you finish language and you're like done, you do another round of that to make sure if you fail it. Guys, I know guys that have fin like failed the last the one. End, the end. Like they're language qualified, SEER qualified, MOS qualified, and then butcher the last PT test. Oh, and it's boy. like, okay, you're out. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the numbers for all of them. Um, okay, that, that, that was good. All right, next question from Wes Adams. Shout out Wes, dude. Uh, what is it like transitioning from deployment to shore duty? I think that more than anything, it's more like, what happens when you come yeah, home? Yeah, from how's that look? Yeah. All right, so for, for me, so I had the experience of going to Afghanistan and then my transition back was actually because I got medevaced out. <laughs> so I, my transition was a little unique because I literally was like on the battlefield and then being flown to various yeah. hospitals and then I'm like home with my wife. And I remember when I met my wife for the first time, I had shrapnel on my, I had like wounds, like open wounds that they were like, oh, don't worry, you're gonna be an outpatient. Like, which was, in, in retrospect, I was thinking like, that's insanity. Yeah. Like, you got a wife, she can take care of you. And so my wife comes in to meet me in the hospital. I'm like less than 10 days removed from like being in an active gunfight. And like, I'm like looking, I look horrible. I look horrible, right? And my wife meets me in the hospital and she's all dolled up because she's yeah, excited to yeah, see me. Sure. And, and they wheeled me in and I'm laying on my stomach because basically my hip and my, my ass cheek and my leg had all these open wounds. And like literally she comes in to like see her husband for the first time. Yeah. And I'm a shit show. Yeah. And they're literally pulling this strip of gauze out of my, the, the hole on my leg. And it's like six foot long of gauze mm -hmm. that they pack in there. And she faints, like instantly faints. <laughs> and so like my wife, like she sees me for the first time and I'm just like naked waist down. Yep. And they're like pulling bloody gauze out of my leg. Like, don't worry, Mrs. Allen, you'll learn how to do this today. That's, that's, a, that's a freak show, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that was like, honestly, I, I was home about a month ahead of my platoon. So for me, the transition yeah. was not, that's not normal. So you want to talk about like a combat deployment to stateside? Like, yeah, so normal way? typically how, for, for the army at least, you get a, Another team will come in to replace you. You'll do like a handoff with them and kind of let them know what's going on in the theater, how things look, um, ensure that each guy from their MOS that your MOS is understands what he's doing and the equipment that he's falling in on. It's like a big portion. And then when you come back, it's like done in waves. We send like a few guys and then a few guys and then a few guys um, just to ensure that everything flows smoothly. And it's a bit of a mess, like flights get canceled, flights get delayed, you have layovers, sometimes you like stay in Europe for a little bit longer than you thought or somewhere else. You get back and ideally everybody shows up at one time, in big ways at least. You're picked up by a bus, you're transitioned like straight to this like CONUS, you're back finally, for us, back in Florida in Destin. 
and you go into like this big building where they do like a debrief and they kind of let you know you've been gone for like six months-ish um, or, or less or more, it depends, but for us six months and there's like a package of things that you have to do like in order to be back and set and you, they, they, that's well done in like a big auditorium and then they have a staging area for your families that have come to like wait for you or, and things like that. They don't do it like they used to like during the surge and stuff like that it was like really big deals and like like small parades and like all this yeah, stuff. Like like that's, that's, home, that's yeah. not it. It's like, okay, cool, your, your wife came to pick you up and goodbye. Um, so that's pretty much it. But on the team level, we've got all this equipment mm. that, is, that has come from Afghanistan and we, like, we're all in charge of it and it's millions of dollars of stuff. We're, our equipment, army equipment, like everything, all these weapons, all these high grade explosives or ammunition or electronics that are, that are pretty legit. Um, so we've got to make sure that all that goes to where it needs to go. So really, it's either we get somebody to guard those for like the next couple days, which is very common, or that night we just take it all apart. Nobody goes home until it's done, which could take five hours, which is a bit of a bummer. So I've seen it both done both ways. We get guys to guard it, like 24-hour guard for like 48 hours and we come back after the weekend or something. Um, or we knock it out that night. And for the most part, that's how you do it. And then you do a, a few rounds of medical stuff that week to make sure that you're like medically back together. Um, you get, you get like, have to redo a lot of your certifications. So you get like an admin week to do all that stuff. But for the most part, it's like, okay, you're back. Now let's tr pick our next training iteration. Yeah. Where are we gonna go for our next trip? What's gonna be next? You, I mean, you guys have like post-deployment leave though, right? Yeah, well, sometimes. Really? Yeah, it's not, that's like it's sacred not, in the teams. It's like not sacred. Post deployment leave. It's not sacred at all. Um, oh, that sucks. Sometimes we, we we were big on this thing called managed leave, oh, where it's cool. like your your MOS needs to have a representative around. Period. Um, oh, so if you're the only echo on the team, which could happen very very often, you're not taking leave. Period. Because we've got some other stuff going on. Oh. Dude, we would be like, yep, everyone out. <laughs> There's nobody at the team now. And we're gone. All right, so that, that's a good segue. And I don't know how much until this thing turns off. So I think we should we should, we should, should stop it early because if it ends, I, I've never been able to save it if it ends. You've got to deliberately Maybe that's it. what happens. If it ends on its own, uh, I cannot save it every single time. So we've got to make sure. All right. We started a little late, but I think we've got at least 15 minutes. Okay, then we're good. So, so, so okay, cool. So we'll, we'll let you know if it's shutting down. We're going to hit end on it. All right, so Wes Adams again, so segue here. Uh, what is family life like when you're deployed and when you're home? And so I will just briefly yeah, say that, uh, at least for the SEAL teams, the my wife probably would say that deployment was actually easier than workup, not because she felt better about it, but in terms of planning, okay? Because you gotta remember that in terms of your family, like they're trying to organize their life around the schedule that they're given. And when you are in a workup cycle that's 18 months long between professional development, like going to schools and whatever, like things change all the time. Even though you're like local and you get to come home here and there, like I was home probably 50% of the time over those 18 months, like your time is really, it's, they give you an agenda. Like, hey, you're gonna be in Mississippi these days and you're gonna be in this part of the country, you're gonna be over here, but it changes so regularly. So like I'd be, um, I'd be in, in West, so what's a workup? A workup is the training cycle that a team does before they deploy. Um, so it's, it's, it's like going through, yeah, anyways. Before you deploy as a team or as a platoon, your platoon needs to like go through all the training blocks to make sure that you're qualified to deploy. That's how it works. You go through shooting, you go through jumping, you go through whatever it is. But so like we would have this agenda of what workup's gonna look like 
but it would change a million times. And so my wife would be like, oh, it'd be great if we could spend this weekend together, go do X, Y, Z. And then lo and behold, like a day before that weekend, oh, just kidding, you're not gonna be local. You're actually gonna go to Florida tomorrow and you're gonna be there for a month. And it's like, oh, great. So like the one thing we were planning for gets thrown out the window or, you know, for, for me, like this was like a, the bane of my existence. It would be like on any long weekend, you know, typically you weren't allowed to leave the area because you needed to be within driving distance of your command. There's like a above mileage limit unless you take like real, real leave. So we would like plan for a weekend to like go do something kind of local. And like, sure enough, it'd been a Saturday and I'd get a text that's like, oh yeah, come back to the team. We got to do an inventory of all this stuff. Everyone has to be here in the next hour. And you're like, great. So like you'd have to turn around and go back. So the point I'm making is during workup, you it's a, it's an illusion that you're around more because you're not deployed, you know, you're you're local, but your schedule changes so much, it's very difficult to plan. Um, even though you, you have these breaks in your schedule where like you're gonna be in Mississippi this month, the next week, the next month you're gonna be wherever, you might think you can take leave in the middle of that just for a weekend, like, hey, I wanna go see my family, but it never gets approved because the command knows that, hey, training can change. I don't wanna book you for leave if we end up needing you for some training exercise. And so, but deployment, that's so rock solid, like when you're gonna be gone, at least when you get close to it. Yep. That for my wife was like, okay, I know that before deployment, we're gonna have pre-deployment leave, and then post-deployment, we're gonna have post-deployment leave, and I know you're gonna be gone for these six months. It's pretty rock solid. So from a family perspective, it's kind of backwards. Deployment was actually easier than workup, and this is really specific to special operations because you do a really epic workup that's very involved. Uh, so my wife would probably say, as dangerous as deployment is, it was easier to manage time, easier to like plan stuff where it was impossible during workup. Yeah, I think the, the stories are very similar. Um, family life for me was, you, get, you actually get a lot of days off. So you get, for us at least. Um, Just hard to plan for. It was hard, it's hard to plan for them, but you get a ton of days off. Um, and my situation was different. John obviously was married at the time. I was super single for a lot of it. And I had a girlfriend for some of it. I had roommates that were guys. So it wasn't as big of a deal when things shifted. A lot of my guys were married, had kids, and the family, that changes everything. Like, you've got responsibilities yeah. that I don't have. So I didn't take, it wasn't as big of a heartache for me when they're like, hey, just kidding, we're gonna do this, it's gonna be different. Um, so just different, different like lifestyles and kind of what you're at. But I think what I've heard that we should talk about real quick, I think there's a big difference between the workups, between the SEAL workup and the Green Beret yeah. workup. And, and we were kind of discussing this last night, and I, I didn't know a lot about it. Um, but it appears to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the SEAL workups that we're kind of discussing are a little bit more deliberate than the ODA workups, in my opinion, just based on what we talked yeah. about. So on an ODA level, if you've got a you've got a deployment coming up that's combat or non-combat, you have like overall medals, or you have medals? Yes. Okay. So you have overall medals that you have to reach, which are like core tasks that your job, your team, for me, water infiltration has to meet annually, but they're like real broad. And us, as a 12-man detachment, we determine how we meet that goal. Mm. It's not with sub-bullets, it's like a sentence. You have to be proficient in your boat. Well, how did you do that this year? And so we, we get our own training. So it's very common for a, 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 a company of 12, 12-man teams, everybody's like doing different things. So we're going to Hawaii to like do boat stuff, or we're going to Hawaii to do jungle stuff, or we're going to North Carolina to do rock climbing stuff and mountaineering. And the guys that are literally next door to us or like in Alaska doing something completely different. And, and there's not a deliberate workup scale where everybody's kind of on the same path. They've tried that with like a, 
one like CQB school, mm. but it just never works because because it's not deliberate. Other teams will be gone at different times. Um, so it's really on the team to not only plan what you're going to do and then logistically build it, That's cool. pay for it, get the equipment necessary, do whatever you want to do. And like, your direction that you take your team is really it's just from the captain. The captain plans this entire thing through us, but it's, it's generally at the end of the year, they're like, how did you need all this stuff? And he's like, well, we went to... For us, like, hey, we went to Hawaii this year and we did jungle training, mm -hmm. check. Because we've got a, a Centan deployment soon where we're going to be in the jungle. And then we did this, check. And we didn't have to really ask. It was just more about, this is what we're going to do. Okay, did you meet at the end of the year? Yes, no, no, it didn't look good, you're going to move on. Yeah, that's like, that's way cooler. Right? That, that sounds like a way cooler way to do workups. The workup for the SEAL teams uh, is like you do the same blocks of training, like in the same place, like the same the same exact course of instruction. I mean, like, I went through, like we do a shooting school. Yeah. Like, you go to the same place, do the same instruction, you start with basics, you ramp it up, and like, the very senior guys that have done like a million deployments are doing the same instruction as the new guys. Yeah. It's the same block of time, and so what happens is the SEAL team, by the end of workup, you've gone through like the required things that guarantees your platoon is ready to deploy. Yeah. And so there's really no flexibility on that. And if you miss, for whatever reason, if you got hurt or whatever, if you miss a block of instruction that's considered vital, you may not be able to deploy. And so our workup, it's always a year long. I mean, it sometimes gets shortened for different reasons. And then there's a six month period before your official workup starts with your platoon that's called professional development. And that's when you come back from deployment, you have your six month proto. And that's when guys are going to sniper school, breacher yeah. school, you name it. It's kind of onesie, twosie, doing random stuff. But then when your workup starts with your platoon, like your platoon basically goes through every single block, just like you did with the previous rotation, all the way start to finish. The order might be a little different to stagger it amongst the different teams, but you do literally the same training. So that's it. That's like, but it is completely different because I, I would be on a team, I would go a year without seeing a guy because I would be gone doing a school and yeah. he would be gone doing a longer school and we would just never, we would we would literally not go through a house or like train together for a year, nine months, yeah. six months, eight months, like all the time. The captain will leave, the warrant officer will leave, the team starter will leave, like the, the fox has to go to like, you know, some intelligence schools mm. and we just, we don't train together at all and then when we do train, it's on us. Like our training is on us. That's not us. That's very different. It's very, that is very different. I think that that's probably the number one difference that I'm hearing yeah. now in terms of training period. It, dude, it was frustrating. Like, so, and this is, this is bordering on a total entitlement kind of thing. But, yeah. You know, you, the first time you go through a workup as a new guy at a team, it's all new. It's a brand new course of instruction. It's a lot like SQT, except it's been tailored for an older and more experienced generation. Like they're not treating you like you've never shot a gun before. They're treating you like, hey, when you shoot your gun, this is how you should do it. So yeah. It's definitely, it's an adult version of SQT. And the first time you do it as a new guy, it's fascinating because now you're going through this instruction with guys that have been in combat. It's like, it's really cool, right? Like you're, you're, the people that are now in class with you are like combat vets. Yeah. Awesome. The second time you go through it, you're like, dude, fuck this. Like I did this yeah. last year. <laughs> this looks eerily familiar. <laughs> and, so, and the older guys, they're uh, like, oh, they're salty. like, dude, I've done this 17 times. Yeah. And so it definitely, it, but that's the way the teams work. It's, I think the, what you're doing is what the teams wish they were doing, which is, hey guys, big boy rules, here's the things you need to accomplish by the end of the year, go get it done. Yeah, it, it's, it seems effective though, if you have the same thing in terms of, in everyone's terms of qualified, just, just CQC. You know? It definitely forces people to be super qualified for everything. 
Um, all right, there's a couple really specific questions for you. Is it true the Q course was shortened to six months from Noah Ruckel 15? No. No, all right. No. They're uh, constantly looking for ways to shorten it, but it will never be six months. The MLS phase is 16 weeks by itself. Do you have any experience with Marshstock operators? I don't. Besides no. I, I know a lot of guys that are Marshstock, obviously, but I've never worked with any of them at all. Yeah, I haven't either. I, again, I've been around them, never worked with them. Um, I know that their course is, is mirrored off of ours very, very closely. We had guys, I know guys personally that like helped stand up that program mm. and they just brought back, they took in cadre that did SF, like cadre that went through selection as a cadre member and brought them in and like audited constantly their course because they want to very someone mm. because the, the missions are very close on paper. Um, that's it. That's the, that's all I know. All right, last question because I think that we are going to run out of time okay. here. Uh, this is for you from Abe uh, Markovsky, and you can just keep it high level. Tips for preparing for Ranger School to close it out. Ranger School is rough. You, so many guys are day one drops in Ranger School. It's unreal. Probably forty percent of the class oh, well. is dropped the first day, and there's a there's a couple reasons that people don't really know about as as to why, and they allow like five hundred people to show up on day one to mm -hmm. Ranger School, and they only have room for like 350. That's just like a fact. Like they know off the bat, 150 of you or some percentage is this, we're gonna let you not even come in, period. Because they lose so many people in the, the time that they get accepted to the time that they show up. So many people quit, something happens in their family, just, they, something messes up. Mm -hmm. So they had to overproduce the amount of people that are coming into Ranger School. So with the day you show up, you have got to dominate that PT test because that's, what, that's, the, that's the line. The line that they're showing right at the front is, how did you do on this PT test? And they're very strict with everything. It's the strictest you'll ever ever take a PT test mm -hmm. uh, in your in your Army career period. So the best way to prepare for that is to make sure that your push-up setups and two-mile run is not only above the numbers, but like aggressively lower push-ups than you think you should mm -hmm. do. That's a good idea. Like the sit-ups should be like clean sit-ups. And the run should be without question underneath the time. That's like the best way to set yourself up for success. Everything else they teach you. That's awesome, man. There you go. All right, guys. So this is going to run out here in just a minute. So we're going to go ahead and end it now. Uh, if we didn't answer any of your questions and you got a burning question you want to ask, feel free to DM us. We'll get to it as soon as we can. Uh, guys, thanks for the support. It's been cool to do a yeah, this, 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 this is fun. awesome. I hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, for sure. So thanks, guys. And, and we're going to end it now. So yeah, see you guys. Later.